I make a habit of telling people about me in my sermons, and sometimes I'll go home and my wife will go, why did you tell that story? Uh, and it's just sort of uh, who I am. I'm an oversharer, and uh, so she gets tense every now and again when I have a build-up to a story. She's like, oh, Lord, what's he going to tell him now? And uh, today I, I, I just, I, I mentioned this because uh, it's relevant to our discussion, but as a kid, I was a bit of a, a rebel. Um, I was a I was a nice young man, and uh, I was a, an average student, did just enough to not get my parents mad. I played sports, but I was a mischievous kid who was really hungry for attention and was really trying to get people to like me, and so I would do all sorts of things and uh, from time to time would get in trouble. Uh, one particular incident in my life, um, uh, I did something that started a chain reaction that ended up with me in the hospital and uh, having my face smashed in. I had reconstructive surgery. Um, Again, no one ever does anything to deserve that, but it was me at my worst. And uh, in the end of this tale, I ended up having to go to court a bunch because the state was prosecuting the adult male who assaulted me. And so... Um, this was a strange time in my life, uh, and it was also uh, a difficult time for my dad in particular. He had just started a, a job at the White House as an assistant to President Carter, and now he was having to take a break from uh, being a part of what the, the center of world politics to come and uh, oversee his rebellious little son who got himself into a mess. I didn't realize how much my dad was invested in this process till years later and I was filtering through a file in a box I'd found in the attic um, that had a a series of things related to that incident. And uh, one of them was a handwritten note, it was pretty long, that my dad had written to the, the district attorney who was prosecuting the case. And it was my dad's suggested closing argument. And now... If you know my dad, this is quintessential John Ryer stuff. This is, I know you're the lawyer, but I got some thoughts for you. I have notes. And and truth be told is my dad probably would have been better at delivering the closing argument than the 30-year-old district attorney they had, you you know, prosecuting the case. But the reason for my dad's great passion on that subject was his son. And it really brought you to this place where you see it's possible for somebody to be this passionate advocate and as well a father. And this is in some ways one of the many lessons we're going to pick up about the Holy Spirit in the weeks to come. We are in John chapters 14 through 17 for the next months. What will happen is is we'll finish John 14 next week and then take December off for Advent, if you can believe that. It's Christmas time, and, uh, and very exciting because it's my favorite time of year. And then in the new year, we'll pick up with John 15, but a reoccurring theme will be the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, throughout my childhood, uh, my childhood, I had gone to church and said, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen, and at an early age had memorized uh, through weekly repetition in Catholic Mass, the Nicene Creed, a uh, section of which says, 
We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he's worshipped and glorified. He's spoken through the prophets. So this was drilled into my head from the earliest of age. I understood the concepts of Father and Son, but I was woefully uninformed and inexperienced regarding the Holy Spirit. That's true in a lot of churches that come out of the uh, theological history that our church is part of, the, the tribe, the stream, whatever your metaphor is for denominations and non-denominational churches affiliated with a theological perspective. Reformed Baptist Presbyterians and non-denominational people uh, don't spend a lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit. The joke is that for years in our world, in our group, uh, people would say it's Father, Son, and Holy Scripture because we, we'd ignore the Spirit's presence and the teaching about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, in reference to and uh, the exaltation of Scripture to a place of deity. Uh, while I did not understand the triune God, we are in this section of the Gospel of John where we're going to get more information about the Holy Spirit than you get anywhere else in Scripture. And it's important, and I would encourage you, as somebody who, when I really gave my heart to Christ, it was in charismatic churches, and there was quite a bit of teaching about the Holy Spirit, but not a lot of it was actually rooted in Scripture. It was mostly, I had an experience, and my experience of this gives me the right to teach this, and, and, you, and you could find yourself really confused emotionally because... Somebody was telling you and really setting an expectation for what your experience with the Holy Spirit is supposed to be, but if you couldn't match that, you think something's wrong with me. In reality, Scripture needs to be the final authority for us about what we believe. And this is going to be part of our study this morning. We're going to look at three aspects of God's character from our text in John 14. Those three aspects are His mission passion, His present helper, and his paternal heart. Let's dive right in here, if you will, regarding God's mission passion. In John 14, verses 12 through 14, these are the words of Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Truly, truly is a, a good marker. This is if translated correctly. He's effectively saying this is a true truth. Uh, repetition in the Old and New Testament is designed to get your attention. And this is one of those moments where Jesus is saying, uh, this is supremely important. If you say you believe in me, you're going to do the works that I do, and you're going to do greater. Now, that means greater numerically. Because once you've like raised somebody from the dead, as Jesus did with Lazarus, how are we going to step our game up over that? It's really all about volume at this point. Because we're not going to do anything that is categorically more miraculous than Jesus has done. But if you look at the history of the church... You see the spread of Christianity around the globe, and you see even at the beginning in the book of Acts, the, the church reaching regions beyond where Jesus was. God's plan was always 
that his church would have a mission to go. When Jesus speaks to his disciples in Matthew 28, he has a great commission where he tells them, go and make disciples. In Acts chapter 1, when the Holy Spirit comes to fill the believers for the first time, Jesus tells them beforehand, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the whole world. You have this perspective that the church is going to go and make a difference around the globe, and it has. Now, these days, if you listen to some in culture, you'd think Christianity has done nothing but destroy the world. Um, A popular trope is that religion in general, but Christianity specifically, has done more harm than any institution throughout history. Um, In the Middle Ages, I recognize that uh, we've had some epic failures, uh, the, the Crusades, Uh, More recently, in the 18th and 19th century West, a lot of churches looked the other way uh, as it came to the enslavement of Africans, and so that is a blight on many Christian churches historically who did not stand up for fellow human beings in that way. More recently, there's sex abuse scandals and sex misconduct, and all of these failures reinforce the narrative that the church has been a colossal failure, but history really would tell us very differently that Jesus' mission for the church, that it would go and do greater things than than he was able to do in his three years of ministry in Judea and Samaria, uh, has really borne itself out. Uh, Religious institutions and Christian institutions in specific have been responsible for things that have benefited society and monumental ways, hospitals, colleges, orphanages. They've been built around the world. The sum total of all that good is what Jesus was talking about when he said, greater things than these are you going to do. You can see in the Scriptures too, as early as a month after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, uh, Jesus is got the disciples and all of the followers of his Uh, doing the mission. He's told them, you're going to go not just to our region, you're going to go well beyond it. So in the book of Acts, which we're going to study in 2019, very excited about that here at the church, uh, one of my favorite encounters that the apostle Paul has is in a Greek region that is actually a very multicultural region filled with Jews and Gentiles. And the declaration of the New Testament was that the Jews would be the first ones to hear the gospel, and then the message would go beyond that. So Paul is in this city called Antioch, and this is the record in Acts chapter 13 that gives you a whole notion of early on the, 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 the passion that the Lord has for the world to go. When the, when the Jews saw the crowds, and this is Paul speaking to these massive gatherings, They were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. 
And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. You see this? The word spreading, moving, going. And there is no escaping the imperative nature of what Jesus has said in John 14, that if you are a Christian, you have a mission. He's effectively communicating that genuine Christians will do the works that he's done, and actually greater works than he has done. And those who are truly engaged with him will be praying and asking that God would work to even make those works more powerful than before. Quick side note, while verse 14 of John 14 does say that whatever we ask for, he will give us, this is said in the context of doing his mission and his works, obeying his commands about reaching the world. So you can't say, Lord, in Jesus' name, I ask for a private jet and, and expect that you know, he's going to say, yeah, in spite of what the televangelists might be trying for these days. Uh, he is saying that in our effort to see people grow in the faith, our desire to lead people to relationship with God, to care for the needy, to plant churches around the globe, we can expect that all of our prayers about need that we would present to Him, they'll all be answered yes and amen. That if you think, hey, we need this much money to be able to build this homeless shelter, Jesus seems to say, I'm on board with that. Ask, I'll make it happen. This is the nature of Jesus' heart for mission. And I have to appeal to you and say, this is why we gather each month and pray, verse 49 of Acts 13, that the Lord would spread throughout our whole region the message of the gospel. We believe God's working and desires to do even greater things through our little congregation. However, the Lord has saw, foot that, saw fit that so we won't forget it's His doing and not our labors, we must seek Him in prayer. Jesus said, if we ask anything in his name, he'll do it. So I'm inviting you to consider making our monthly, hour-long prayer and praise gathering for the mission of our church a part of your life. Our church's mission, being effective in the world, your mission to be effective in the world, are going to grow exponentially by virtue of our dependence in prayer. We're going to pray, and next Sunday night is... Our next prayer meeting, an hour, have great time of singing, then a section of prayer for different things, and, and then we're done for the night. And we're, we're doing this as a discipline because we know as a church that if we're going to be effective for Christ, it's going to require His movement. We want Him to work through us to reach our region, to revive believers, reach friends with the gospel and renew culture, all of it so that Jesus will be seen. And it's because Jesus has a passion for mission. The logical question then that will often get asked, and I certainly have reflected on this on a number of occasions, is to say, how am I going to do that? I, I don't have the ability to do greater things than Jesus uh, has done. Uh, I don't know that I even have the desire sometimes to do greater things than Jesus has done and this is where we come to our second point. If he has a passion for mission, God has promised a present helper. This is our introduction to the Holy Spirit. 
Verses 15 through 17 of John 14 read as such. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus says the Father is going to send another helper. And I I think it's imperative for us to recognize that when he talks about another, that's saying two things. One is they've already had a helper in Jesus. So he's saying we're going to send another one. And that word another actually means another in the original Greek, another of the same kind. And some religions have tried to make that sound like Jesus is talking about another human prophet going to come along later. But it's clear from our text that what he's talking about is the Holy Spirit because uh, he's saying that this helper is going to live in us. And another human being couldn't do that. But beyond that, we also know that he's saying it's another of the same kind. And what he means by that is that this will be another person who is by nature God, divine in nature as Jesus was. This is really another testimony to the divinity of Christ. He's saying, I'm going to ask the Father, and we're going to send somebody, another one, just like us. Divine in nature. Now, you won't be able to see him. The world can't see him. They don't know him either. But we can't see him. But we, according to this passage, will know him. Another aspect of this is the word helper itself. It's the Greek word parakaleidos. And it gives us the English word paraclete. If you're in the legal profession, you've come across this term from time to time. The word denotes a counselor akin to a defense attorney. He comes alongside of you, hence the word para. And then you call on them, which is the Greek word kletos, alongside to call on. This is what we've been promised. The Spirit has come to help us, to be there for us. It's imperative, too, to remember that the Spirit is not an it. When you're raised in a pluralistic culture, you like to get along with everybody, and people will refer to the great force in the world, or if you were raised in the Star Wars generation, just the force. Um, And and that's presumed that everybody kind of has got the same spirit we're talking about. But Jesus is saying that this another will be like him. Uh, He will have personhood. He is a he, not an it. And he will live in the believer. Along with a non-existent understanding of the Holy Spirit as a young child, I also had a pretty distorted view about how to understand uh, the obedience to God, what it was, and how it would be brought about in my life. And we'll talk more about this next Sunday. But it is interesting how many who are steeped in religion will read verse 15, which says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And it effectively says in their minds, uh, if I'm going to love God, I'm obligated to keep his commands. Understanding the context in John 14 that Jesus is speaking with friends and he's preparing them for what is going to be a devastating experience, watching him being crucified and sharing intimate feelings and thoughts and and connecting with them at this hugely relational level that Jesus is more than likely uh, talking about 
that a person who loves him will inevitably want to obey him. Instead of you're obligated, he would say, those who keep my commandments are the ones who have love for me. It's the inevitable result of affection for Christ. And this is why obeying God isn't possible unless you've had an initial encounter with the Holy Spirit, meaning you've had an experience with God where you are now at peace with Him because you recognize that Jesus has paid for your sins. He's redeemed you. He has made it possible for you to be at peace with the Lord and get forgiveness for your sins. These things are real now to you. And at the moment that you believe, the Spirit of God has entered your life. Different Christian denominations have said it different ways and different sequences, but you know whether it's I asked Jesus to come into my life or I received Christ or I expressed faith in Christ because from all eternity it was determined that I would. I don't know how you communicate it, but at the moment of your conversion, the Spirit of God came to live in your soul. And this is the reality for the Christian. Jesus says in verse 17, we will know him. He'll be in us. And this relationship is what produces a love for him. In the Old Testament, we saw manifestations of the Holy Spirit's presence in the lives of his people. But being around, surrounded by, rested upon by the Spirit is very different than being in people. The prophet Joel in Joel 2.28 says that the Lord would pour out his Spirit on all flesh. It's important to see in the Old Testament that the The Holy Spirit physically resided in the tabernacle of God. They had a curtain at the back of the temple and and only the high priest could go in there once a year and not without the blood of the sacrifice. This is a curtain that was literally and metaphorically separating people from the presence, the ongoing presence of God. And so this spirit lived in this temple and now by Jesus' blood... You have been cleansed. Your soul now is a place where the Spirit of God literally lives. If you're a believer, the presence of the Holy Spirit is in you in the same way it was in the tabernacle. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You've heard this before, 1 Corinthians 6, 17 through 20. At least you've heard the expression before. Here's where it comes from. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now an admonition to obedience. Flee from sexual immorality, for every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See, the the encouragement to obedience is because the Spirit lives in you. Not because you're trying to get the Spirit to live in you or because of some other reason related to your security in Christ. You're secure in Christ. You have the Spirit in you. And this is why we're called to recognize and continuously be filled with the Spirit, the presence of God in our lives. This was the hope. The present helper would be there. Somebody to advocate and strengthen. Somebody to spur us on a presence, a person. When speaking to high school students over the years, and I did quite a bit of that, um, 
I've shared the story of how the Spirit empowers us. I've illustrated the power of the Spirit by communicating an experience I had in high school. My high school sweetheart and I were at her home alone, watching a movie, sitting on the couch right next to each other, and the environment turned romantic, both on the screen and in the room. Faced with the temptation to engage in sexual activity, even though we were not married, at the moment of truth, at just the right time, faced with this amazing opportunity to either obey or disobey, I was instantly empowered to quickly stand up and move to the other side of the couch. What caused this empowered compliance with Scripture? It was the sound of the garage door going up and her father coming home. See, behaving with his daughter was much easier in his presence. The ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit is not, the, not only the motivation for obedience, he, he's the power that enables us to make the choices to love God and trust His Word. The, the Christian always lives in the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's God's present helper. Romans 8, 9 says, You, however... Not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. You may say today, I don't know that I have the Spirit of Christ. I I don't know that I've ever received Christ. I've never even heard of this Holy Spirit. Today's your day. Jesus wants to fill you with His Spirit. If you've never been born of His Spirit, this is the day. If you have faith to trust in Christ, He wants to bring new life to you. The Spirit is God's present helper. So we know that He has a mission, passion. He has a present helper. The third aspect of God we want to look at this morning is God's paternal heart. Verses 18 through 20 say this, Jesus speaking, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while... And the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. I will not leave you as orphans. When you think about orphans, sometimes my mind immediately goes to their physical needs. I think, oh, this poor young person who's on the street. When I did a mission project in Peru once, they have kids that, they don't have orphanages. They just have kids wandering the streets. Nobody to take care of their basic essential needs. I ask, who's going to feed them? Who's going to provide them shelter? Who's going to go into massive amounts of debt to pay for their college education? Maybe that's a little personal. But uh, in this context... While Jesus certainly cares about our physical needs, it is in this moment with his disciples where he's preparing them for his departure and the loneliness and pain they will feel. It's apparent Jesus is talking about the emotional void that is created in his absence. 
Orphans not only have no means of physical support unless they live in an orphanage or state housing, more importantly, they lack the presence of someone who loves them and is present when they need emotional support, when they need strength. For some of us, emotionally absent parents have effectively created this same void, whether through divorce, workaholism, or just unloving neglect, many have effectively felt this same loss in their hearts. And it's this absence that's kept them searching for love and so many other things. Oddly, often the same things that preoccupied the absent parent. So often I hear middle-aged people say, I swore I wasn't going to be like my parents, and yet here I am doing the same thing. And that's largely because our souls are longing for a stability that must be formed by Jesus' promise not to leave us orphaned. But instead, he's promised he will come to us. He's come to you today. He's pursuing you this very day. You may have found yourself here in this church, but he's here saying, I want to be central to your life. He also demonstrated his loving pursuit of us when he came to earth to rescue us from sin. Jesus paid a price to rescue us from sin. And as anybody who's ever adopted children or fostered children knows, there's a cost associated with that. There are legal costs. There are uh, certainly physical costs, food and all the things that you chip in just to care for others. Jesus paid the ultimate price, his life to make way for us to be adopted as his children. And the Apostle Paul wrote of this when he wrote to the Galatians, another group of Greeks who believed in Christ. And he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his Spirit the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You and I are crying out for something. We want God. We want a relationship with the Father. Jesus has promised us, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. The spirit is the means by which you are going to experience the daily refreshment of the Father's presence, of his care for you. He has paved the way and adopted us as children. I want to introduce someone to you today. This is Randy Wyatt Brooks, one of the cutest and most fortunate kids in the world. Three weeks ago, after 802 days in foster care with Carolyn's and my dear friends, Stephen and Kelly Brooks, Randy was officially adopted into the Brooks family with all the rights and privileges pertaining thereunto. And uh, Wyatt's dad is one of my best friends. Uh, he's a buddy whom I go on vacation with annually, a couple of friends of mine, um, and he and I. Um, he's a two-time former colleague of mine, having served as the middle school minister when I was a student pastor at a fairly large church. And then he was my youth pastor at the church that we planted in Florida. He was my kid's former youth minister and by far their favorite minister. Um, the Brooks family... Uh, Kelly and Stephen supported this church financially in the early years when there were fewer people in attendance on Sunday than there are kids in that other room today. And while I'm glad 
that Randy was adopted. And he will bring so much joy to that family, to his big sister, his two big brothers. Um, what I'm most thrilled about is who Randy was adopted by. These are simply amazing, caring, and godly people. Uh, they will meet his physical needs as they have their other kids, but more importantly, they will be the emotional, steady presence that will guide them, protect them, advocate for him, raise him to make a difference in the world, doing the specific mission for which Randy was created in the first place. And here's the thing. This is what Jesus has promised you when he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send a helper. That helper is designed to be all of the things that we would want an adopted parent to be. He's there to guide, protect, advocate for, and give you a very strong sense of how he wants to empower you to do the mission for which you were created. So let's give thanks for our Father today.